Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tanya Wright, the Clerkship Director here at Penn State College of Medicine. Today we have a special guest that's going to be discussing preeclampsia eclampsia. If you want to follow along, this is covered in APCO Educational Topic Number 18 and is covered predominantly in Chapter 22 in the Cardiovascular and Respiratory Disorders Chapter of the Beckman and Ling Textbook, the 8th edition. Today our guest is MFM physician Dr. Avi Hamaroff, and he'll be talking with us through this topic. Dr. Hamaroff, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Wright, and thanks uh, for the opportunity to be here, and uh, I hope everyone finds this enjoyable and uh, learns something. Awesome. So the way we like to do this, Dr. Hamaroff, is we read a case that's provided by APCO, um, and then we'll go through and I'll ask you some questions and then you can just give us your expert opinion. All right, so the case is an 18-year-old G1P0 who's 38 weeks and zero days presenting for her routine prenatal visit. She's had an uncomplicated pregnancy thus far, except with a late onset of prenatal care and she's also obese with a BMI of 35. She reports that during the past week she has noticed some swelling in her hands and feet she also has been feeling a bit more fatigued and has had a headache on and off. She reports good fetal movement. She's had some contractions off and on, but nothing persistent. Her blood pressure today is 147 over 92, and her urine dip is 1 plus for protein, but negative for ketones and negative for glucose. Her fundal height measures 36 centimeters, the fetus is cephalic, and the heart tones are 144 beats per minute. On physical exam, you do note that she has 3-plus pre-tibial pitting edema and trace edema on her hands and face as well. She has 2-plus deep tendon reflexes and 2 beats of clonus. You review her blood pressures up to this point and note that at the time of her first prenatal visit at 18 weeks, her blood pressure was 130 over 76 and her protein in the urine was negative. However, since that visit, her blood pressures have been climbing higher and higher with each visit. Her last visit one week ago, she had a blood pressure of 138 over 88 with trace protein in her urine, and she had gained five pounds. The first question is, how do we actually define high blood pressure or hypertensive blood pressure in pregnancy? Is it any different than it would be in a non-pregnant state? Thanks, Dr. Wright. Um, so this is a great case, I think, for everyone to consider and think about. Uh, tons of great information presented um, and really ties into a lot of uh, the latest ACOG practice bulletins. Uh, but to answer your specific question, uh, no, the, the limits, the definitions of high blood pressure during pregnancy are the same as when um, outside of pregnancy, uh, at least classically being systolic blood pressure greater than 140 or diastolic greater than 90 or both. Awesome. So what are the different types of hypertensive syndromes that can occur in pregnancy? I guess what would be the differential diagnosis for this patient? So globally speaking, we think of hypertension in, in, in two broad categories. One is chronic, and then one is the pregnancy-induced or pregnancy-related hypertension uh, terminology, which we don't usually use anymore, but those are the two big categories that, um, that I suggest all of my residents and students consider. In terms of chronic hypertension, that's hypertension that's documented before 20 weeks gestation or when the hypertension is noted during pregnancy and persists for longer than 12 weeks postpartum. So in other words, it can exist in the very early parts and preceding pregnancy up until 20 weeks, or it can be diagnosed during pregnancy and then just never really resolve within those 12 weeks or so and, and continue thereafter. 
Um, for, pre for hypertension during pregnancy, there's a few different um, syndromes that we talk about, the, the most common being preeclampsia um, and its unfortunate uh, progressor, eclampsia, and then gestational hypertension. So classically, we define as preeclampsia as the development of new onset hypertension and proteinuria after 20 weeks of pregnancy. We used to talk about mild and severe forms. Nowadays, we talk about preeclampsia with and without severe features. Um, there are also atypical forms as well, but that's that's not that, that that's a little bit, I guess, beyond the scope of this uh, this talk. Um, there's also another syndrome where you can mix chronic hypertension and then develop preeclampsia on top of that that chronic hypertension, which we call preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension, and that's those are that's those cases when when we know women have chronic hypertension who then later on during the pregnancy develop new onset proteinuria after the 20th week of pregnancy. In pregnant women with pre-existing hypertension and proteinuria, the diagnosis of superimposed preeclampsia should be considered if the patient experiences sudden significant increases in her blood pressure or proteinuria or any other signs and symptoms consistent with, with preeclampsia with severe features. And this can be exceedingly difficult and very nuanced uh, is what I want to make sure that the listeners understand. And then in terms of gestational hypertension, it's not all that dissimilar except that um, it does not have the associated proteinuria. So it's hypertension without the proteinuria, which appears after 20 weeks gestation or within the first 48 to 72 hours after delivery, but then resolves uh, by 12 weeks postpartum. Excellent. Thank you so much for that review. Dr. Hemroff, you alluded to a diagnosis of eclampsia. How does that differ from preeclampsia? So the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia is that women with eclampsia will develop seizure, specifically grand mal tonic-clonic seizures. And on that note, it's important to keep in mind that most of these cases usually develop within about 24 hours or so of delivery but up to 10% of cases are diagnosed between two and 10 days postpartum. All right, so we've talked about pre-existing chronic hypertension. We've talked about the fact that you can actually have superimposed preeclampsia with an underlying diagnosis of chronic hypertension. We've covered the diagnosis of gestational hypertension as well as preeclampsia, eclampsia syndromes. What about HELP syndrome? We've read about this in the literature. What exactly is that? HELP syndrome is defined as the hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelet syndrome, essentially. And like severe preeclampsia, we would consider that to be an indication for delivery to avoid jeopardizing the health of the woman, as it can actually progress, and, and the thrombocytopenia especially can become quite severe, and these women can get very sick very quickly. Dr. Hameroff, preeclampsia is such an important and clinically significant disease, and it could be harmful to patients when we take care of them. Um, do we really understand why this happens? We continue to debate this quite vigorously, and there really are no great data uh, to really explain to us what exactly is going on in, in the preeclampsia syndrome as well as the other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. However, what most authorities seem to agree on is that globally there's a, there's a primary issue of endothelial dysfunction. And that happens pretty much across the board at all levels of different sized blood vessels. And if you think about dysfunctional endothelium, 
especially what I how or how I describe it as leaky vessels in in general, then I think that can really help the students understand globally all the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia. So for for example, patients typically suffer from hypoxia and hypoperfusion, as well as ischemia leading to placental pathophysiology, including syndromes including growth restriction, oligohydramnios, placental abruption. They can also suffer from systematic endothelial dysfunction in other ways, including the development of peripheral edema, proteinuria, and hypertension. So when I explain this to to students, I I, I remind them that even though patients will appear quite puffy and and quite edematous, which you might typically associate with heart failure, um, in this case, the, 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 the primary issue, at least as far as we think we know, is that the endothelium is and the blood vessels are literally leaking they're leaking their their fluid contents so you can actually result in a per, what what can happen is you get a peripheral vasoconstriction because blood volume actually decreases and so that's what we think might contribute to the hypertension um, as well as the, the the global edema especially in the lower extremities that we see in preeclampsia if you think about it also with the cerebral vasculature, if you had slightly edematous vasculature within the brain, that could contribute to headache, blurry vision. If you had it within, um, within the liver, that can cause liver capsule uh, a rupture, actually. Um, it can also give you severe epigastric pain. Um, so, so that's sort of, we, we don't really understand why exactly this happens or what the triggers are specifically, but endo, global endothelial dysfunction uh, at, at all levels seems to be a, a major contributor, including on the kidneys. So this happens at the level of the glomeruli, uh, this, which can result in, pro, in the proteinuria as well that we see with preeclampsia. That makes perfect sense. Okay, so then going off of that then, what would be some of the laboratory findings that we'd expect to find to make the diagnosis of preeclampsia eclampsia? So the, the good news is that this seems to be something that's been pretty consistent for a little while now. Um, in terms of differentiating preeclampsia from gestational hypertension, again, it's important to note that these are probably very similar, if not the same disease process. The difference between the two being that preeclampsia has the proteinuria, whereas gestational hypertension doesn't. The lab findings, specifically number one for preeclampsia, we define proteinuria as greater than 300 milligrams in a 24-hour urine collection. There can also be an elevated hematocrit, again, owing to that hemoconcentration that, that, that we sort of, that I spoke about previously. There can be hemolysis, and we can actually see this in a few different ways. Classically, we used to order LDH um, and some other labs. Uh, there can also be a thrombocytopenia, especially when we're talking about the HELP syndrome which we define as a platelet count of less than 100,000. Uh, then there can be elevated liver enzymes. So we specifically talk about the transaminases AST and ALT, and we define their, ele we, we define their abnormal elevation as being twice the upper limit of normal for whatever your local hospital laboratory defines as normal. Um, and then this last, this last item uh, in includes an elevated uric acid level. This is also been sort of back and forth in the ACOG practice bulletins about whether or not it's useful. Uh, in the most recent practice bulletins, um, there is 
there is that there is some consideration that again it, it can be considered, um, but doesn't is not necessarily predictive or diagnostic of preeclampsia. But but if it were elevated and you had a confusing case, um, that 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 could be another uh, a data point you could use to to help make the diagnosis. That makes sense. One of the other things that has been of interest to me is the idea of calculating how much protein is in the urine using an a uh, protein to creatinine ratio. Can Great. you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, so this is, um, so classically, we would evaluate a protein urea with a 24-hour urine protein collection. It's very, it's a very cumbersome process. So there's been a lot of research looking at what's called the urine protein creatinine ratio. Um, so this is uh, a, a, a quick test just of, uh, like you would order any urine analysis. It can be done on a relatively small volume of, of urine. And it gives you uh, a basically an estimated ratio of, based on how much, um, uh, based on measurements of urine, uh, protein, and creatinine, what would be the projected 24-hour urine content of, I'm sorry, 24-hour content of protein in that urine specimen. So different cutoffs have been suggested for proteinuria, uh, for, for proteinuria in, um, in, a, in a protein-creatinine ratio. Certainly anything greater than 0.3, there really should be no question, and, and that, that should be considered diagnostic for um, the proteinuria of preeclampsia. That's really important because a lot of times patients come in and we don't have a 24-hour period to figure out the diagnosis, and we have to make an intervention based on the information that we have, and so it's nice that we finally have a test that gives us pretty rapid uh, results that will contribute to, to the diagnosis and ultimately help make the plan. Yeah, and you know, that's a good point. If um, whenever we suspect a patient may have preeclampsia or is at high risk for it, we, we typically like to collect these labs at a baseline uh, in early pregnancy before anything is developed, uh, and then we look for a change later on if we think if, if we think preeclampsia is, is developing. This is especially important with patients with chronic hypertension. Um, really getting their baseline 24-hour urine protein is, is really important because then if it changes later on in pregnancy, then we could say, yes, this probably is superimposed preeclampsia. All right, so it sounds like our case that we presented was a pretty classic case of preeclampsia. Would you say so? Absolutely. Okay, and so we've already kind of worked through a lot of the effects that this diagnosis can have on different organ systems in the fetus. I want to summarize a few of those, and then I also want to expound on some to kind of develop the concept of severe features versus non-severe features. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I think I alluded so, to it. But. Yeah. So... In terms of organ system effects, so firstly looking at the cardiovascular system, we discussed that elevated blood pressure with an associated increase in cardiac output. Um, in terms of hematologic effects, you already alluded to the idea of third spacing, right? Um, in terms of renal effects, we talked about the fact that there could be a decreased GFR leading to an increase in the creatinine, um, also leading to development of proteinuria. Um, we didn't really touch very much on the neurologic effects. Can we talk a little bit about that? What's, what are some of the neurologic things that patients will oftentimes complain of that will get us thinking that this could be associated with preeclampsia or eclampsia? Sure. So at least in terms of the severe features that we typically counsel our patients to look out for include things like headache, especially one that doesn't resolve with typical over-the-counter analgesics or other methods that a patient with a migraine might typically use to resolve her headache. Um, so when, when they don't resolve, or especially if they're persistent for longer than is normal for the patient, uh, then that would be concerning. 
we also advise the patients to, um, to, to, to alert us to blurred vision as well as scotomata. We don't know why, but patients can also develop hyperreflexia and hypersensitivity. So traditionally, when we have patients who we are concerned that may have preeclampsia, we will check their reflexes um, for this other indication that they may have preeclampsia. And then finally, the progression of preeclampsia to eclampsia, the most feared effect of, of, of the syndrome, would be grand mal seizures, uh, which again would define eclampsia. Cool. So what about pulmonary effects? Any effects on the lungs with the diagnosis? Absolutely. So in the, in the, in the mindset of, again, global endothelial dysfunction, as you can imagine, the endothelium within the lungs may also uh, become quite leaky, again, for lack of a better uh, word. Um, and so this can actually lead to pulmonary edema uh, and, in fact, um, progress to adult or acute respiratory distress syndrome in some of our patients with preeclampsia. All right. In terms of effects on maternal and fetal, then could we review what would be some of the fetal effects with this diagnosis? We think that the trigger for preeclampsia really is, has to do with something that occurs at the time of implantation. So a lot of the downstream effects for the fetus come from perhaps could be explained by this phenomenon. So the, the one, the, the most concerning would be abnormal placentation with all, with all of its associated downstream effects, including growth restriction, uh, placental abruption, and ultimately fetal death if the placenta really is not able to function appropriately. We might also see this on ultrasound with um, oligohydramnios or abnormal fetal testing pretty much at any time during the pregnancy. But ultimately, one of the biggest concerns that the fetus may suffer from is preterm delivery in the event that a patient were to develop preeclampsia with severe features especially if she were to become unstable, we might recommend her for delivery before 37 weeks. And then after that, the fetus were to be delivered, the neonate would then, would then potentially suffer morbidities associated with prematurity. Very good. So just to summarize, preeclampsia can be non-severe. Historically, we call this mild preeclampsia. And preeclampsia can then have severe features, and those severe features are much of what we discussed today. I guess, in a nutshell, how would you define severe features? According to the ACOG Practice Bulletin, uh, number 202, we can talk about severe features being defined as a systolic blood pressure of 160 millimeters of mercury or more or diastolic blood pressure of 110 or more on two occasions at least four hours apart unless antihypertensive therapy is initiated before this time. And this is an important caveat because we used to be very, the suggestion used to be that it really, you really had to have this four hours of sustained hypertension, whereas this new practice bulletin um, kind of takes that requirement away in cases where we believe the patient to be quite ill and requiring more urgent therapy. The second severe feature is thrombocytopenia of a platelet count of less than 100. There, the third severe feature is impaired liver function, as indicated by abnormally elevated blood concentrations of liver enzymes. As we said, 
to twice the upper limit of normal and severe persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain that's unresponsive to medication and not accounted for by alternative diagnoses. Again, another important distinction such that not every pregnant woman with nausea and vomiting should be considered to have preeclampsia with severe features without some sort of attempt at a workup or treatment um, to, to, to treat presumably less, um, to presumably treat other causes of, of her nausea, vomiting, or, or pain. Another severe feature is renal insufficiency, which is defined as a serum creatinine, which is more than 1.1 milligram per deciliter, or a doubling of the serum creatinine concentration in the absence of other renal disease. Another severe feature that we mentioned was pulmonary edema. Another one is new onset headache, unresponsive to medication, and again, not accounted for by alternate diagnoses, as we spoke about before. And finally, visual disturbances that we typically describe as blurred vision, uh, which is new onset and that doesn't resolve. Awesome. All right, so we have our patient who we have given the diagnosis of preeclampsia. Um, her blood pressure is in the non-severe range, and did she have any severe features? Um, I don't think she did, actually. So no severe features, as far as we can recall. Um, do we treat her? How do we treat her? What do we do now? In terms of management, um, the recommendations are that any woman with preeclampsia, or really any hypertensive disorder pregnancy, including gestational hypertension, um, or HELP syndrome, wh wh whichever, you know, whichever syndrome you think she's suffering from, after 37 weeks, these patients um, should be delivered. Now, that doesn't mean she needs a C-section, um, but uh, she should have antihypertensive therapy initiated if indicated, um, and then she should be recommended to stay on labor and delivery to undergo an induction or augmentation, depending on fetal status, maternal status, uh, making sure there are no contraindications to attempting an induction of labor, such as fetal malpresentation, uh, non-reassuring fetal heart tracing or status, um, and then um, and then and then and then be and then be ultimately be delivered because delivery really is the only treat the only treatment uh, for preeclampsia or any of the um, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Okay, so how would this be different if you thought that she had severe features? Would she be treated in a differently? Then in addition to recommending her for delivery, you might also consider giving her magnesium sulfate uh, to prevent the progression of preeclampsia to eclampsia. We think that magnesium works by competing with calcium to block the calcium channels, which inhibit the intracellular flow of calcium, which is needed to initiate neuronal firing. This, in essence, can raise the threshold uh, for neuronal triggering of seizure activity. Because we give magnesium through the IV um, as a drip, we need to make sure that the concentrations don't become toxic. So some signs of magnesium toxicity, which is why we check on patients every few hours, um, include the loss of patellar deep tendon reflexes, weakness, double vision, and dysarthria. Respiratory depression and or arrest can occur with levels greater than 14. Okay, so the management seems pretty clearly outlined when we have a diagnosis of preeclampsia with severe features. We 
We deliver them and we treat them with magnesium sulfate for a 24-hour time period to decrease the risk of seizure, right? Mm -hmm. What about patients that have elevated blood pressures but don't have the diagnosis of preeclampsia or do have the diagnosis of preeclampsia? How do we manage the actual high blood pressure? There are a few different medications that we can use to, to treat them to keep their blood pressure under control during the pregnancy. It's very important to make sure that these patients, first and foremost, are not on any ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blocker medications, as we know these, these medications can cause harm to a developing fetus. So whenever there's a patient with chronic hypertension, it's very important to review her home medications and make sure that she is not on um, one of these known um, potentially harmful medications. So in our wheelhouse of medications, the two most, the two most common used nowadays are labetalol and nifedipine. Labetalol is, a, is a typically given in 200 to 2,400 milligram daily doses divided in two to three doses. We typically would start at a dose of one or 200 milligrams twice a day and then up titrate from there as needed. Its most common side effect is headache, which is similar to the side effect of, of the next medication we'll talk about, which is nifedipine. The mechanism of action of labetalol is that it's a dual alpha-1 and beta adrenergic receptor blocker, and it competes with other catecholamines for binding to these sites. The next medicine I'll mention is nifedipine, which is a calcium channel blocker, which is given in 30 to 120 milligrams per day usually of a slow-release preparation. Again, nifedipine's most common side effect is headache. These two antihypertensives are some of the most studied during pregnancy and are thought to be the, the least likely to adversely interfere with a pregnancy. The third medicine I'll mention is methyl dopa, which is an alpha-2 adrenergic receptor agonist. It was one of the earliest and first medications studied for the treatment of hypertension during pregnancy, but it can be rather unpredictable and it's not prescribed as often anymore as labetalol and nifedipine. For the acute management of severe hypertension, and these are patients who come to labor and delivery with, with severe hypertension and, um, and you're concerned for preeclampsia or again preeclampsia with severe features, we would give we would prefer to give medications through the IV. So the, the most common that we would probably reach for would be labetalol in IV form. And we typically give that as a dose um, of 20 milligrams IV, and then 20 to 80 milligrams thereafter every five to 15 minutes, up to a maximum of 300. So when I was a resident, it was easy to remember, first you gave 20 and then you doubled it uh, for two doses thereafter. So first 20 milligrams, and then 40, and then 80 milligrams, if assuming the patient was still hypertensive in the severe range. The other IV medication we typically reach for is hydralazine, and we give that as either a dose of, typically start with five milligrams IV or IM, and then five to 10 milligrams every 20 to four minutes thereafter. But you usually can't give more than three doses. Finally, for the patient whom you can't get IV access on, you would consider nifedipine, and instead of the extended release form, we would give an immediate release form at a lower dose, typically of 10 to 30 milligrams oral, which you would repeat in 45 minutes if you, if you still needed. 
Dr. Hameroff. Wow, that was a comprehensive review of a very complicated topic, and we appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. Um, we hope to have you back again in the future to talk about even more complicated topics. So again, thank you. It was, it was my pleasure. I hope everyone listening learned something. And what's exciting about this is even tomorrow, a new study could come out and, and completely change or antiquate everything I just said. Um, I hope that's not the case, at least in the near future, but, but, but maybe as we gain more information and learn more about this very mysterious disease process, um, we could hopefully improve the outcomes for our patients um, for the better. And so I, I thank you for taking the time to listen. Awesome. Thank you.